Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. So, have you heard? COVID 19 is soon going to be over. Economies are going to bounce back and all will be hunky dory, except, of course, for the short term inflation and the fact that in America, the jobs recovery really has slowed down and there's still there more than 8 million people who had a job before the pandemic and they still don't have one now. So, if the recovery doesn't happen automatically, let's just imagine that that's the case. What has to be done? America sounded like they might have had it right, but now there's many arguing that, in fact, the reason for the job slowdown in the recovery has been because cash handouts have been too generous so people haven't seen the need to go back to work. Can you win on this? So what is the most sensible way of guiding economies out of the COVID crisis? Assuming, of course, the virus itself goes away. That's this week on the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. Welcome along. Well, if you read some of the reports from august bodies like the IMF, notice the hint of sarcasm in my voice there, uh, we really are going to come out of the economic downturn from COVID-19 surprisingly quickly. The IMF expects UK GDP growth in 2021 to equal 5.1%. In the US, 6.4%. France, 5.8%. Uh, Canada, 5%. Australia, 4.5%. They're less because, of course, they didn't suffer quite the same economic hit as the rest of the world. So, Steve, it's not a simple as that is it though that we i mean because a lot of these forecasts are based on us getting vaccinated pardon me there we are there's a burp uh, so simple uh, steve it's it's not as simple as that is it really because a lot of these forecasts are based on we get vaccinated we go back to work and we pick up where we left off but as we were saying last week we're picking up where we left off with uh, uh, a, a lot of businesses in in much higher debt but i suspect the business i mean that is going to be sector by sector isn't it there's going to be some sectors where businesses have managed to muddle through without acquiring much debt and then there's others like airlines for example who've had to take on debt just to yeah. survive it's going to be a very patchy uh, and a sector by sector experience rather than a, a broad revival or, or a broad broad downturn but um certainly i think there's going to be less more willingness to spend by household. I can quite along, go along with the idea that households are going to want to get out there and spend and party and you know celebrate being free of COVID, uh, as we it looks like people celebrated being free of the Spanish flu back in the nineteen twenties. But mm. at the same time, they, they they haven't got the level of savings people I think they've got because households are carrying a, you know, a far higher level of debt now than they were per head uh, compared to GDP. Back in the 1920s, it actually we, we tried. It's like trying to have a. It's if the Spanish flu occurred in 1928, not 1918, and that's a big difference. And for that reason, I, I yeah. think the the capacity of the household sector to borrow to spend just isn't there. Whereas the and in, in the and the corporate sector even less. Um, so we won't see a credit driven. Um, boom of any sort but there might be a behavioral one in response to the to the you know the miserableness of the of the downturn itself so i can see i can see reason for saying a rebound this time that i i didn't think were there back in the 2008 crisis and they turned out not to be there but this time there could be a rebound but it's going to be attenuated by the unwillingness of people to go into more debt but businesses have been incredibly resilient, haven't they? I mean, what what surprises me, I'm looking at figures from December only because they're the latest ones that we can get available from the Office of National Statistics in the UK. 
You actually only, found data there, did you? Yeah, there's, there's a few numbers in there. Only Must one be point, a mistake. <laughs> only 1.5% of businesses had permanently ceased trading uh, as a result of COVID-19 or since COVID-19 had started. Mm. Uh, so, uh, I mean, airlines seem to be surviving despite all they've faced. They, they, we've got uh, an, an accommodation business. That's sorry, one point five accommodation and food businesses. That is have have uh, permanently ceased trading, uh, despite the fact that they have had to be closed for so much of the last year. Uh, so, uh, there's enormous resilience in the face of such adversity. So, well, that's, sure, they've, yeah. they've taken on debt. That's been a large part of it, and there's been government grants to try and carry them through. So, I guess that's all helped. It does. How it has all helped. I mean, I've, you know, I was banging the drum about the need for massive levels of government uh, assistance during the crisis back in back in February, March, because of last year, two thousand and twenty. Because without it, you would have had a, a massive failure. This, you know, this is one classic case where the private sector could not provide its own cash flow. So you had to have government uh, money creation coming in to fill the void. And even though. Uh, there was far too, far too much caution about that compared to what there should have been. There was enough to keep uh, corporations from folding and people from going bankrupt on a massive scale. So it certainly policy helped this time round, though it probably wasn't as high as it should have been. But thank God it was there. Yeah. Well, surprisingly, it was there. I mean, because it, it, there has been a in that month or two, there was a massive reevaluation about the role of governments and government spending, and uh, you know, chucking out a few old textbooks in the process. Yeah, not enough of them, unfortunately. <laughs> but you've got to give some credit to the governments that have done this, haven't you? I mean, it, it, well, it, this this is what happens all the time. What what pisses me off so much about economics is that when a crisis hits, um, before the crisis occurred. You know, pariahs like me get ignored and who's this idiot called Minsky anyway and then the crisis hits holy shit we're not going to let capitalism fail on our watch they mm. throw money you know as, as they've got the capacity to do at all times they throw it like crazy at the at the financial system to keep it from folding and then on the other side they go back to the same mentality they had uh, that led to the crisis in the first place where they ignore these issues so, yeah yeah and there's yeah, a danger pa- that pardon that me happen- i'm not going to be waving a flag and cheering of the troops at the uh, <laughs> international monetary fund i'm afraid <laughs> all right so how do we get out of this then what should we be doing because uh, if, if, if we've got this big concern that things are going to move slowly because of uh, uh, this uh, business debt that uh, has has been built up the u.s approach obviously has been that it's not over yet and uh, you know more fiscal stimulus is going to need to to drive reflation do we need to uh, have they got the right idea do we need to do more of the same because there is the concern isn't there that well some of those for example checks into people's bank accounts are going to find their way into the stock market or worse into cryptocurrencies and create bubbles which are going to you know lead to the next downfall yeah, I mean, there's certainly a fair bit of money turning up in the cryptocurrency world on that front, and also the stock market. That's true, um, uh, and, and like particularly, I mean, you, you, I haven't even thought about that side of things because I work from home all the time anyway. But if you have somebody who's been working in the city and now confined to quarters back at home, um, what they're saving on transportation might well be turning up in cryptocurrency purchases. So. Um, there could well be a, a feedback from that into the level of speculative valuation we're seeing of, of assets like the stock market yeah. and cryptocurrencies. But it's not, now. Just, not just the money you've saved on your train fare in the United States. It's those uh, it's those checks which are landing in your bank account mm. from the government as well. Uh, so, you know, you, you're potentially better off because of that too uh you know so it's just the question about whether you have to whether you're saying well okay we need to in- increase spending if it's not going to happen naturally then we need to give people money if businesses need to loan to try and meet the demand that we're trying to create 
then maybe we need to give them money too. I mean, do you approach both ends to try and uh, boost the economy? Because there's a danger that if you don't do that, then people will go, well, okay, it's great, but we haven't got very much money to spend. And businesses go, well, the subdued demand, we're carrying so much debt, we're really not going to, you know, we're not really going to grow too much. And the, the economy just sort of uh, vegetates for a decade. Well, this this is why you know. I mean, and back when the crisis, when the, the the COVID thing began back in February, March of last year, I was saying we need a modern debt triple E mm. because there was a policy I put forward after the financial crisis in two thousand and eight that I thought had absolutely zero case of ever happening. So I simply had it. I wrote it up very briefly on my blog, and I've never really worked on it since. But it's quite possible for the government to create money, which is then given to the household sector under condition that, that those who receive it have to pay their debt down, that those who don't get it, uh, if you don't want to cause additional monetary demand, at the moment we wouldn't necessarily want to do that, they could be required to buy newly issued corporate shares, which could only be used to pay down the level of corporate debt. So by the government's money creation capacity could be used to drastically reduce the level of private sector debt, uh, um, debt leverage and therefore free the, the private sector of the constraints that their level of debt is currently putting them under and give you a stimulus out of people being, you know, going back to sort of 1950s or 60s levels of private debt rather than the levels we're carrying now. That's what I'd prefer to see happen. Right. Um, you've got to do think, that on again, a global it's, it's basis, got- haven't you? Because no country is going to be happy to see the United States, for example, saying, well, we're going to write off all our corporate debt because it's going to place our corporate corporations at its distinct advantage to the rest of the world. Every, every country will want to say, well, we've got to do the same. Well, I hope they would. I mean, this is the sort of thing which could actually, you know, you know by taking the, the debt breaks off corporations and households, you could stimulate the economy quite effectively. Um, but my, my, again, my, everything I say about economic policy these days is attenuated by expecting climate change to start biting as well in the next one or two decades on, on a grand scale. So uh, I would just like to... Uh, partly if, you, I if, you wanna, debt for, if you get rid of debt for everybody, then everyone's going to try and grow quickly and, uh, you know, that could make the situation worse, you know, consumption. You could actually could, have an acceleration in, in, the, in our loading of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, it, there's no simple solution here. This is why it's such an uncertain time in human history because I, I would like to reduce the level of, of private debt and therefore you know, stimulate the private sector in that in that fashion as it would do. But I don't want to stimulate more carbon dioxide consumption. I don't want to stimulate further straining the the planet's resources for the sake of human gratification. And and therefore um I'm I'm more thinking about policies which, if we tried them now, would be effective when we realise we've got a drastically reverse direction and go into degrowth. Mm. Um rather than policies which would just be able to stimulate the economy now and do bugger all if we then find ourselves in a uh, in an ecological crisis. So a debt jubilee, I'm sure a lot of you know audience would be behind you on that, but you know you said it had 0% chance before COVID. It's now moved up. I'd say much. a 0.5% chance now. Yeah, I was going to give you 1%. But yeah. Oh, okay. wow. Generous. <laughs> Much more bullish than you are on this, but still 99% chance it's not going to happen. So then mm. you get back to, well, what else can you do? Which gets back to the point. Do you put, do you, do, do you need to stimulate that recovery? I mean, have we, because the UK attitude, the US attitude, Joe Biden's approach is very much, well, we've got to build infrastructure. We've got to put money into people's bank accounts. We've got to get jobs back. The UK's approach, Rishi Sunak's approach is, oh my God, we've spent so much money now. Uh, we just need to get through this so I can start pulling it back. 
you know, which one's right? I sort of the thing. Well, the definitely, that. Biden is is more correct than Sunak. And the the intriguing thing would be if we actually got two two economies of that scale following different approaches at the mm. same time uh, before climate change jumps in and confuses everything. But you, you well we could well see that you know Sunak's approach leads to you know unexpectedly poor UK performance and Biden's unexpectedly good American performance. I certainly hope that's what comes out of it. Though you know, there's there's so much being thrown into the mix this particular decade that. Uh, you know, in some ways, anything could happen, but that's my odds. If, if, if it appears that Biden has learned from being Obama's understudy, and also I think he's probably liberated by his own age, he's not necessarily thinking in terms of a second term and having to guarantee, you know, acceptability to the widest portion of the population. He may well go in for that stimulus sending just because this is my one chance and I've got to do it. Uh, whereas Sunak, if he goes for, you know, austerity again, then we could get a very nice comparison of the UK to the USA uh, in that in that time period. Yeah, by which time uh, he will be, of course, Prime Minister of Great Britain. In fact, that could happen in a couple of weeks, the way he, uh, it's going for, uh, for Boris at the moment. But um, so the IMF, of course, is forecasting just that, that the US is going to grow much faster than the UK because of the stimulus. But similarly, they also expect the growth in the US to slow considerably. And that's what, you know, I hear that from a lot of quarters as well, where people are saying, well, they're, they're putting too much stimulus in and they will pay the consequence of, of that as it starts to slow. So unless you keep it, because just as, uh, you know, if you increase spending, the moment you start to slow that spending, then that, that has a consequence on the economy, you know, a point that you've made time and time again. Uh, can't, the same thing happen, yeah. can't, the, can't the same thing happen with government spending? If you don't keep on doing it, the moment you start to cut back on it, you can have big consequences on the, the, the state of the economy. It's the rate of change of the, the deficit that has an impact that way rather than just the actual deficit itself. Yeah. So, yeah, that can, that can be an issue. And you talk about that for the private sector, but could it happen with public sector spending yeah, too? It's exactly, exactly the same money creation process. If you, yeah. you know, a, government, a government deficit creates money in the same way that banks lending more money than they get back in repayments creates money. Um, so it's, it, it, and then if you see what's going to be the check on the rate of change of GDP, it's the second second derivative of that process, not the first. So you can have deceleration turning up, even though you've got, uh, you, can be, you can be going faster more slowly. Yeah. So, <laughs> and, 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 that, and that can, the, the acceleration effect, which is therefore slowing down, can be a negative in your economy, whether that comes from the commercial sector or from the government spending. So his approach is very much, well, there's a trillion here, another trillion here. Let's, let's throw another couple of trillion in. Surely he'd be better to have mapped out a path. Perhaps he hasn't got the time because, as you say, he's getting on in years where mm. you actually say, well, OK, we're going to ramp up government spending over a period of time and there will be growth. And we are expecting it will get, well, there'll be a crossover with private sector growth at some point, which is the point at which we want to pull back. That would be the smart way of managing it. Mm, yeah. Uh, but of course... Uh, timing those things is rather a challenge. So, um, but I've got overall, I think I'm definitely in favour of Biden's approach of running a larger deficit now and providing finance, providing money to the private sector by doing that rather than uh, Sunak's approach, which is going to be let's get our books in order, which is taking money out of the private sector. Yeah. Um, so it'll, it'll be, 
interesting national contrast between the United States and the UK the, if they do actually follow those directions. The other interesting contrast is going to be vaccinations, isn't it? So one billion people apparently in, on the planet. So what are we, about eight billion? I don't know what the population yeah, is. Yeah, roughly eight billion. That'll so, do. Yeah. So one in eight has been vaccinated so far. Um, so countries like the UK have obviously pushed ahead. The UK attitude is very much in favour of vaccines in terms of acceptance of having it. It's one of the highest in the world. Ironically, uh, it's Australia's biggest weakness. Not only are people not getting it fast enough, but also crazy people in Australia are saying they don't want the vaccine. Uh, so that could prolong the the recovery. So is that going to be, how important is that going to be? It seems to me that that is going to be a major determining factor on the, the strength of economic recovery as to how free people think to be, they are to be able to actually get out and spend money and, uh, and circulate in the economy. Oh, yeah. If you've still got a fear of getting the disease, then you know that's going to taper economic activity no matter what. I mean, I'm seeing that just in Thailand right now because Thailand has let its guard down and let a, a third uh, a third wave really overtake the economy. And the result, people, it, there is there is a lockdown on, but it isn't just that. It's people's unwillingness to take the risk of going out and spending. So if you still have the virus hanging around, whether it's by not getting vaccinated enough or or new variants like India is suffering under at the moment, then that will cream the economy, whatever the government tries to do. Australia is an interesting example, isn't it? Because people are travelling around and doing stuff. Uh, so, for example, if we look at the uh, proportion of people, the, the Google Mobility Report, which shows us uh, how many people are doing various things uh, in terms of travel now versus before the pandemic, and if we look at uh, the number of people going to workplaces, it's still 33% lower in uh, in the UK. Similar story in the United States. In Australia, it's 6% down. So actually, Australians are back in the office. So they've not got this fear of getting the, the virus because it's such a low amount there. But also, similarly, there's a lot of people who don't want to have the vaccine. It's not been helped by the way the government's managed it by saying that AstraZeneca is going to give you blood clots, so don't take it, so we'll hang on till the marvellous Pfizer vaccine mm. comes along. So that's, that's, that's delaying it all. That's going to delay Australia's economic recovery, isn't it? Because, I, I mean, for how long can Australia be a closed economy? without tourism, for example, or without international travel? Well, it may have to be there on a rather more permanent basis than they're expecting, I think. I'd, I can't really ever see travel getting back to anything like what it was in the, uh, the 2000 to 2020s. Um, I, think, I think those days of, of mass tourism are going to be coming to an end. Again, climate change being a major reason as to why. Um, and if, you know, if, if the expense, I mean, we all know what happened with the... Uh, when, when 2001 occurred and going to the airport went from being, you know, uh, kiss your partner at the, at the um, roadway outside and be in the, in the lounge in 20 minutes, now it takes you half an hour to two hours to get there because you've got to go through yeah. all the security apparatus. Well, if the COVID system, if we still have country, some countries where there's an outbreak, others where there's been massive vaccination, others without an outbreak and without vaccination and so on, uh, getting to an airport is going to be even more time-consuming than it was after bin Laden. So it's going to be so for countries heavily dependent on tourism, it's 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 going to be a tough few years. I mean, that's for sure. Yeah, and that's where Thailand. Thailand is one of the classic cases for that. Australia is pretty bad as well. The UK, frankly, relies a lot on tourism. So. Uh, that side of the economy might never come back to the same scale yeah. it was before. And central banks, uh, I know the answer to this question, uh, are they overplaying their hand? I mean, they, they, the, their belief <laughs> is that, uh, you know, uh, they can ignore inflation, for example, until unemployment is very low. 
and uh, they expect that they they can keep on with QE, and I know your thoughts on that, until there's jobs for everyone, even the low paid. I mean, do they really have the instruments as a central bank to start looking at unemployment as uh, by sector and looking at uh, trying to correct it? I mean, these are fiscal measures. These aren't jobs for central banks, are they? Well, again, if, if you're going to have a government creating money, it's got to be the Treasury that's doing it. Um, the central yeah. banks, what I want the central banks to do actually is bring in central bank digital currencies uh, just because I think we, we're going to need an avenue to get money to people quickly uh, in the future. And the fact that we, uh, you know, like in the UK, I know that it's it's still awkward to get to government stimulus to individuals. It's fairly straightforward in the Australian system given a different, a different tax regime. But I, I always want to have a central banks to set up a structure that the Treasury can use at a future date. Um, that's what I think they should be doing. And those people fearful of inflation, I know you're not because you think uh, that, that consumption is going to be so low and presumably unemployment is going to remain high as well because uh, as a factor of consumption being slow. But, uh, I mean, if if there is, uh, like Joe Biden's approach, for example, of pumping a lot of money into the economy and there is a recovery, could that be the downfall of a, of a recovery that uh, – uh, however, that inflation manifests itself, uh, that uh, it, bringing forward consumption is just a short term hit and, and inflation could be a consequence of that. Could, could no, you I mean, see it picking up? I mean, I, I largely see inflation as being an income distribution uh, issue. Um, when you get extra bargaining power for workers and raw materials producers to drive up the prices they put, to, put into manufacturing and manufacturers respond by increasing their prices to try to hang on to their margins. Um, we're not in that world. I mean, even with the scale of stimulus that Biden is talking about, you're not going to get uh, a level of demand that means the demand alone causes raw material prices to rise. But what we're more likely to see, and this is what I bring back to the climate change issue, uh, if we see a collapse in, in crop production in some parts of the world, it'll be a collapse in supply uh, that then causes, to some extent, a price response. Uh, and then when that happens, what it will, will mean if we suddenly find that food is, you know, I'm going to go, go a, a bit exaggerated, if it's like two or three times as expensive, if that actually happened, if food prices rose that much, we'd see a collapse in prices of other, other, other commodities as well. Um, so, again, I see this being a, a sectional thing, and it's going to be more what happens on the supply side. Uh, rather than the demand side, which is the usual source of inflationary burst, like we saw back in uh, in uh, the nineteen seventies. So, how do how do governments mitigate against that? Then, what should they be doing right now? Well, that's why I mean, I, I don't think you can because if if we see you know, climate change starting to hit the reliability of food supplies, I mean, for example, I, I know I saw quite a few friends of mine uh, complaining about the sudden cold snap that hit not just Europe but uh, Canada as well. So in the middle of spring, you had freezing winter temperatures wiping out their, they were quite mm. appropriate in some cases, wiping out their tulip supplies. Um, uh, well, if that happens to the agriculture sector and suddenly you have a 20 or 30% fall in production of wheat, um, then the government can't do anything about the price impact of that. Uh, we might well see the government getting involved in rationing at some point. Mm. Um, and I think that's inevitable uh, with climate change. But uh, the, the government certainly can't control the immediate price impact of that. Yeah, yeah. And by the way, uh, I've had several attempts of trying to 
grow bulbs in the garden which have been uh, killed by frost so there you yeah, go it's it's, yeah. a, it's a real problem my garden doesn't look as nice as it should uh, and i'm and i want to know who to complain about it too uh, what about china in all of this then i mean they've grown their share of world trade um we presume that will even out over time uh, but because of covid19 and because they were you know, one of the first back to work and uh, able to produce more that other countries weren't able to. Um, so, uh, yeah, is that going to be how's that going to play out? Is is China because we of course we are also in the West reevaluating our relationship with China, which could be a good thing. Mm. So could could we see that we are not happy at seeing China growing its share of world trade and we think we need to do something about it? And so we start to shorten supply chains and bring back local industries, which, of course, is one of the things that, uh, you know, the other natural disaster four years of President Trump might actually have been a good thing <laughs> uh, in that, you know, he was trying to push down that road. Probably one of the good things that President Trump was trying to do. Yeah, like someone that I can remember arguing that one of the favourable things about Trump is he'd actually caused the relocation of production away from third world uh, low-wage production back to America um, just because people would, could no longer stand the instability of their prices from a, a globalised supply chain. Then along comes COVID and it makes it even more extreme. So I, I do think we're going to see um, uh, China suffering it to some extent from relocation production back to the first world economies from which it came. But at the same time, China has actually developed its own homegrown corporations that, you know, the Americans don't have the skill base anymore. In particular, they don't have the, the machine tool uh, workers and the machine tool knowledge that China's accumulated. So, um, you know, China will come out, has, has come out of this crisis looking a lot, lot better and a lot, lot stronger uh, than Western economies. And that's, of course, being used by Xi to shore up his own regime back at home. So, um, you know, countries which have a, a, a strong central state and a central state which um, is accepted in having that role, and China definitely fits that in spades, uh, can look back on the COVID crisis and say the strong state works, the, uh, the Western idea of a democratic state doesn't. But we're not going to accept that, are we? You know, we are. Of course not. No, we'll, so, we'll, we'll, con- we'll continue complaining as China continues growing. Yeah, which is a concern, isn't it? Unless we stop, bu- unless we just stop buying, and we can say, "Well, okay, uh, we want our freedom," and one of our freedoms is we're just not going to buy from China. We're going to introduce tariffs, which is obviously what President Trump was trying to do as well. We're going to we're going to tariff our way to freedom. Yeah, I mean, also, I mean, again, as the global supply chain, you, the, the 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 extent to which this is actually contributing to global warming is enormous because. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I, the shipping alone from, again, I don't know the figures as, as well as I should, but thinking, shipping is a huge component of the actual contribution we're making to carbon going into the atmosphere. And we're, we're, there's, to retool the, the shipping fleet to make it uh, carbon neutral would be an enormous task. It's probably easier in some ways to do that onshore and move production back onshore. So um, I, I, I think the globalised supply chain days are done, uh, but China has built its own capacity to compete, capacity to, to innovate uh, in the meantime. So the global supply chain might fall apart, but China's still going to be with us. 
So we are going to come out of this uh, probably doing the wrong things. We can almost be certain of that. So uh, one thing is that governments obviously will be trying to pay back their, uh, their their debt as they see it. Certainly, that will be Rishi Sunak's focus. He's made he said so much about it. So the idea of spending more uh, is the exact opposite of what he wants to do. We'll increase taxes to try and recover some of the money that the government has been spending. And central banks obviously will also be saying, well, okay, we need to now reduce our balance sheet. So, uh, I mean, the central banks have been saying, well, it's going to be three or four years before we start to even reduce our bond buying program. But there again, the Bank of Canada uh, said, well, no, we're going to start doing that uh, this week. Uh, and also, we're probably going to uh, push, start pushing up interest rates in a, in a year or so, rather than in a few years down the track. So, uh, the, how do you think that central banks are going to respond to this? And you know, and our government's going to do just the wrong thing. Is that is that your sense of it? Oh, as well? it, it, it's it's almost like describing what's happening on the deck on the um, in the control room of the Titanic to some extent, uh, as, and with with the several captains at once, rather than just one captain as well. So. Um, I, yeah, I, I just what I want to see is just some structures in place that can work in the aftermath of the beginning of an ecological crisis. That's that's the main thing I'm worried about. Now I expect them to stuff up in the aftermath of COVID. Um, uh, certainly, Sunak is likely to do a nice little cho- uh, um, theoretical proof of modern monetary theory, which won't won't go astray in the current environment versus Biden. Um, but central banks thinking they're going to put up interest rates when the, when the level of private debt is the highest it's been in history, with the sole exception of the, you know, the 2008 eight level. Yeah. Um, and particularly Canada uh, with their housing debt. Let's say that would be an interesting yeah. experiment. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you can, bank, you can bankrupt the household sector much faster than you think by putting rates up. And because they ignore the level of private debt in their own thinking, and I can see plenty of proof of that still in most central banks, that'll be a whammy they don't expect. So rates up, oh, my God, rates back down again, that sort of thing. Uh, uh, Sunak cutting government spending. Oh God, we've got a recession. We've got to spend increased government spending again. So plenty of toing and froing. Um, the, the main thing I just want to see uh, central bank digital currencies created on a grand scale, so that when we find ourselves on the wrong side of the ecological crisis and we have to cut back consumption and bring in rationing, there's a potential channel there for the treasury to use through central bank digital currencies. And I'm, I'm still trying to figure out, you know, aside from the uh, f- from the, the, the dangers of climate change, what your thoughts are on what central banks should be doing now then? Because on the one side, you think, well, okay, if they, if they, if they keep on with, with quantitative easing, there's negative consequences of that. But if they pull back on uh, on quantitative easing, uh, unless, we, unless we change how uh, government debt is issued, uh, if they're not buying it, then we're going to get runaway uh, uh, in, uh, interest rates as a consequence of that because bond yields will be rising so much. So they're between a rock and a hard place, aren't they? They are. And I, th- I think I mean, if you really look at the last 40 years, neoclassical economics uh, taking over in the days of Milton Friedman back in the 70s and then being made even more rabid right wing by Sergeant Lucas and all that crowd of the of neo- American neoclassicals, they really had the whole idea that all you had to do was vary the interest rate about twice as fast as the inflation rate was varying and you could control the economy perfectly, what they called the Taylor Rule, which was a major part of the underpinning of all the uh, DSGE models. They, the, the, the crazy thing about DSGE models, they actually include the central bank as part of the system. Um, and see it as being the stabiliser by rap- varying interest rate more rapidly in the opposite direction of variations than the inflation rate. Well, they weren't expecting to hit zero. 
that's where they got to. Yeah. And 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 you know, and so in a way, we said the ineffective um, can't, can't you can't control an economy using interest rate. They're leaving out the stock, the level of debt. They're just looking at the flow and thinking they that that's all they need to control without looking at the accumulation. That'd be a bit like climate authority looking at the flow of carbon dioxide and ignoring the accumulated stock in the atmosphere. I'm sorry, that's not how the planet works. Uh, well, ditto, I'm sorry to central banks and neoclassical economists, that's not how the economy works. So uh, with, with that focus, they are now really looking at a period of impotency. The one thing that had been potent is causing asset price inflation through QE, and now they realize they let it go too far. How did they let asset prices drop? So yeah. they really are in a quandary. Yeah, they are. Well, I mean, it's seventy percent higher. So the the balance sheet of the uh, of the Bank of England is eight hundred twelve billion, seventy uh, percent higher than it was uh, at the start of last year before the before the pandemic. It's only going to mm. keep on going up, isn't it? And of course, the way that you know conventionally uh, th- that's accounted for the the interest payments on that. Well, actually, if the it doesn't show on the on the government's budget, does it? If the central bank is is holding yeah. those assets, it doesn't show as a uh, as a, a as an interest payment that has to sit on the on the budget uh, but if they were to let go then it then it would so obviously then they're, they're never going to let it go so it's 812 it's going to be a trillion isn't it soon two trillion four trillion <laughs> at what point do we actually say well it's a bit of a nonsense actually issuing these bonds in the first place maybe we should issue enough bonds to make the market operate but we just uh let's just let the government go into deficit well i mean the the, the central bank bond buying doesn't create money this is this the mm. um, it's the it's the spending mean, by the government it, that does yeah it's spending yeah. by the government that does so the central bank can buy as many of those bonds that they like all that it means is that uh, the bonds aren't turning up on the on the books of the private banking sector they're turning up on the central bank's books instead and therefore don't have any interest rate um, payment requirement on them um, so it, it doesn't affect the treasury's capacity because the treasury when they run the deficit that creates the money that's used to buy the bonds in the first place. So mm. there's, there's not a problem with the actual buying of bonds. It's really uh, that when the when the when the government gets in, when the central bank gets involved in buying bonds off the private banks, that's when you start to see the the the, the, the deal with the you know, pack with Mephistopheles. Uh, the fact you've got to continue doing it because that is putting buying pressure on the stock market. Now the, the central bank stopped doing that, and they've got to watch the stock market fall. Yeah. Yeah. And and that I think they should bloody well watch the stock market fall because it is far too high. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. Okay. So the answer to the question because I don't think we have necessarily answered it. So we've, <laughs> we've got we've got thirty seconds to answer, and we we have touched on it. What does the government do to manage its way out of the uh, out of the pandemic? And the answer is that they do have to spend, isn't it? There's got to be. We've got to spend to help business. We've got to spend to help con- con- the consumer with the danger that if we push up consumption in the wrong way, then we are going to uh, create not inflation necessarily as a concern because we're a long way off that because of mm-hmm. unemployment, but the impact it's going to have on the environment. That's the, that's the concern. That's the real concern. I mean, I don't, I don't think we're anywhere near a territory where we're going to get demand pull inflation out of the government money creation. That's, that's what the mainstream is always worrying about because they make the mistake of believing uh, – First of all, they think the government's spending crowds out private spending, which is wrong. Um, and they think also that too much government spending overstimulates the economy, um, which is potentially true. But they, oh, I'm, getting, I'm getting caught up in all the, the knots of the double-entry bookkeeping here. Um, but the, the central banks uh, 
are impotent except being able to cause asset price inflation and it's time they stop doing it. Yeah, all right. And governments need to start spending. Uh, and, yeah. And not assume it's over. And it's not the mantle that's going to worry. It's going to be cost push inflation if we get a collapse in, in food output courtesy of global, of global warming. Yeah. And we need to vaccinate the world, not just our own countries. That's the other aspect of it all because we're not going to be over this thing until, uh, until everyone's immunised. Uh, Particularly what we're seeing in India right now, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then countries like Australia need to, need to realise that if you're going to get herd immunity, you've got to have more than, uh, I think it's about 45% of Australians are prepared to have the vaccine. My, my mother-in-law. Only 45%? Yeah. My mother-in-law, a bunch oh, of our friends, uh, just we'll finish on this point, a bunch of my mother-in-law's friends, and she won't thank me for uh, mentioning this, uh, uh-huh. are, are there saying, uh, oh, I don't know if we want to have the vaccine because it can make you sick. I've heard you be sick for a day or two. And there's the problem because Australia has not suffered like the rest of the world. They have no idea what this thing can do. Uh, and mm. so the idea that they might feel a bit queasy for a day or two and they might have to skip lunch uh, is, uh, is putting them off having it. Uh, so, uh, you know, that, that's the problem, too. I think we were going to reevaluate. Maybe we were going to realize that Douglas Adams was right that the dolphins are the most intelligent species on the planet. Yeah, maybe. Well, certainly the people who my mother-in-law hangs around with, obviously. Uh, anyway, uh, we'll, we'll catch you again. I really hope she's not listening. Uh, we'll catch you again soon. Thank you, Steve. See you next okay, time. Mate, bye. There's so much to talk about. What happens next? Isn't there in the global economy? And I'm sure we're looking at it over and over again over the next few weeks on the Debunking Economics podcast. That's it for this week, though. I'm Phil Dobby. He's Steve Keen. Back again for another one next week. Thanks for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.